All right, so we're going to begin this evening uh, with an introduction into Esther. We're going to kind of, it feels like we're going back a quarter. Because uh, we're going to start at the time period of Daniel, really, right? The end of Daniel, uh, he's uh, with the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's where Esther takes place, is in the middle of the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, we're going to start off with some characteristics of the book. Uh, first off, we probably all know this, right? Esther is one of the uh, few books in the Bible, very few, that do not mention God. Uh, by name. Um, And so while we see God working throughout the book, he's not explicitly mentioned at all. You know, we talked about that in Ruth where you see God's providence, but he's not mentioned a lot, but the Lord is still mentioned in the book of Ruth. The Lord is not mentioned in Esther at all. Um, The story is told over this framework of a multitude of feasts. So if you like eating, there's a lot of it. In the book of Esther, right? You have about eight feasts that the story is kind of told over. And it's, uh, it's a book that has a lot of moral ambiguity in the characters. Uh, we don't really know the situation of Esther and Mordecai as far as how they worship the Lord. Are they following the law? Um, I mean, we see Esther going through this process Uh, when she's becoming the queen that, you know, maybe it reminds us a little bit of Daniel where Daniel said he wasn't going to, wasn't going to violate God's law by taking the choice foods. Then in Esther, we have her serving wine to the king in this banquet and to others, right? So, so maybe there's some moral ambiguity of the characters there. Um, And then also the story is told chiastically. So how many people know what that word means? Okay, we got one. That's more than I was expecting. Um, A chiasmus is a Hebrew literary device that you are actually very familiar with. You don't know that you're familiar with it, but you are, right? It's in passages like Genesis 9, verse 6, which is up here. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. It's the inverse, right? It's the parallel inverse of the first statement. So two statements that are listed, but they're listed in inverse. And what does that do? Well, what that does is it adds repetition. It adds emphasis. It helps us remember these things, right? And when you realize that, you all of a sudden start seeing that in a whole lot of passages, right? Uh, Adam is the first man, and through him came sin. And then through Jesus, who is a man, comes salvation, right? There you have this this set up in all these different scriptures of the inverse being said. And that's to help us remember these things, right? Uh, you may also think of it as dramatic irony, right? An ironic reversal in the story. There's a lot of them in the book of Esther, and we're going to talk about them as we work our way through. But there's a lot of irony in the story, and I think that's part of what makes this book very cinematic, maybe is the word, right? How many people have watched a movie based on Esther loosely, maybe, right? There's a lot, right? There are a lot of movies based on Esther loosely, very loosely, some, right? Um, but that, it's an easy thing to do because the story is basically written for you, right? There's very little you have to do to make this story work and be appealing to people because of the way it's written. There's a lot of 
dramatic irony in a lot of the different situations that people find themselves in and how the story unfolds. And that makes for a very good story that's very entertaining to us. Um, And so, you know, that's just some few facts about the book of Esther, some characteristics of that. Uh, When are we? You know, when in the timeline are we? We are at about 483 BC, and we're going to be going until about 473 BC. This is the time during the Medo-Persian Empire where King Xerxes is reigning. And in Esther, he'll be referred to as Ahasuerus. And so why do we think that it's Xerxes? Um, well, there's a few different reasons. Uh, the first one is that in Esther, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, there's this large feast that occurs, this banquet that takes 180 days. There's a lot of people invited, specifically generals and princes and people in the army are all there. And that falls in line with historically what happens during Xerxes' reign, which is at this point in time, three years into his reign, he has conquered a revolt in Egypt and named himself Pharaoh. And then he returns home to talk to his uh, generals about what we're going to do next, which, spoiler alert, is take on Greece, right? That's what they're going to do next. But this is like a celebration of we we conquered this revolt. I am now Pharaoh again, so uh, we're going to have a big party to celebrate. Um, Moving on from that, you have the, the, uh, the capital... Uh, and the size of the, emperor, of the empire are in, uh, the capital's in Susa, which actually moves later on during Xerxes', uh, Xerxes reign. Uh, at the end of his reign, he moves the capital. Um, but the size of the, the nation at the time, uh, you know, from India to Ethiopia, Xerxes is often uh, seen as the kind of the downfall, the downward time period of the nation of Medo-Persia. So at the reign of Xerxes, they have the most land that they're going to have. At the end of his reign and moving forward, they start losing bits and pieces. It just starts kind of falling apart at that point. And so uh, that kind of helps us uh, narrow down the time frame there. And then uh, the, the third point, uh, in chapter 2, verse 16, Esther is presented to the king in the 10th month of the 7th year of his reign. And that would put you, if, if this was Xerxes, that would put you at about uh, four, um, 479, 480 uh, BC, which is uh, the time period where he has a big defeat at Salamis with the Greeks and comes back home. Um, so he would be returning home and be in Susa at the capital at that time. So that's kind of why we think that Xerxes is the king mentioned here uh, in Esther as a Um, Does it change the story if it's one of the other kings? Not really, right? It doesn't really change what happens here. Um, It's just just interesting to see this at its time in history. Um, And speaking of that, I think it does add some perspective for us to understand kind of the historical context of Xerxes and the Medo-Persian nation as a whole at this point. Uh, This is kind of a a mini-review of a small section of what Brother David Job went over uh, towards the end of his his, uh, lesson in Daniel. Um, So Xerxes' reign begins in 486 B.C. and lasts until 465 B.C., 
Uh, at the beginning of his reign, he has a lot of revolts from the Babylonians and from the Egyptians that are trying to, trying to break away, trying to pull away, and he has to, to crush those pretty quickly. Uh, he goes into Babylon, he takes their idol of their god, Marduk, and he melts it down which ends a practice that his father and grandfather did of kind of following along with their religious traditions and just going along with it. Uh, he says, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I am Persian and we're doing this now. Uh, the revolt continues. And so he goes back to Babylon and he destroys the city. Um, and so after that, he has some revolts in Egypt that he conquers uh, and becomes uh, Pharaoh there. And then he's, uh, he has this campaign against the Greeks. It's one of the largest invasion forces of its day, of the world at this time. Two million people in 4,000 boats, and he gets them over to Greece. In order to do that, he has to dig a, can uh, a canal so he, he has enough room to get all of his boats through. And uh, there's a lot of work that's involved in that, a lot of slavery uh, from the... Uh, Egyptians and Babylonians that get thrown in there to dig that canal for them. And you can see remains of that canal even today. Um, it was so, so vast and impressive. Um, he wins a couple of battles against the Greeks, Thermopylae and Artemisium. And he gets to Athens and he's so mad that they're trying to resist him that he just burns the city. Um, and so after that, he talks to his generals and he says, what should we do next? And one of them advises, well, you should go back to your capital and just wait them out and just basically uh, crush them economically. Just keep them where they are. Don't let them expand anymore. And we'll just take care of them that way. He doesn't listen to that general. He listens to the one that says you should go and fight them by sea in a naval battle. So he listens to that general and is handily defeated. It's really brutal. Um, he loses a lot. And he's pretty crushed by that. And so he uh, listens to the other advisor and goes back home and decides that, you know what? I'm done with war. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to build the largest things I possibly can. Uh, so he really invests himself in a lot of construction uh, builds palaces, builds some, uh, the wall of all nations, I believe is, uh, is one thing that he builds. Um, but he, he spends a whole lot of money and resources in the war and then in his ongoing building projects that he, he starts burning through all of the money in his treasury and has to greatly increase the taxes on the people to make up for it. So that's, pretty standard, right? We see that happen a lot through world history. Um, you get a ruler in there who really wants to go for, uh, you know, building the biggest things possible and making a name for himself and bankrupts the country, right? Um, that's pretty common. Um, but Esther occurs kind of in the middle of all of this, right? So we're talking 483, just three years into the reign, to 473, which is about 12 years before it's over. Um, and so the book of Esther is going on in the middle of a lot of this. Uh, most of the book occurs after his defeat at Salamis, and that's because he's back home. King Ahasuerus is back home, and he gets involved in a lot of uh, 
what's called harem intrigues. Uh, there's a lot of, of things that are going on there that he's involved in. He also parties a whole lot and builds things. And that's kind of what he spends his time on at that point. So, what does this say about the character of Xerxes, right? He's one of the big characters in the book, so we kind of need to know, right? Uh, Xerxes was known as being cruel, passionate, self-indulgent, and a womanizer. Uh, Some examples of this. Uh, One of the first things we see is on the way to Greece, uh, he takes his army to Salamis and uh, Pithis actually puts him up there and takes care of all their, uh, their living situations and food and everything. He offers to pay Xerxes a tribute to help him in his campaign against the Greeks. And Xerxes is so impressed by this that he says, no, actually, I'm going to pay you instead. Uh, so Xerxes, you know, fills some of his treasury well, then they're going to go leave, right? They're leaving and they're going to go invade the Greeks. And Pythis asks, based on their previous encounter that went so well, he asks if his oldest son can stay so that he'll have somebody to carry on the inheritance just in case the worst comes to worst, right? Um, Xerxes was not happy with that. Uh, he said that that sounded like he thought they were going to lose, And so he took the oldest son and he cut him in half and he went to the road where the army's going to go and he had one half put on one side of the road, the other half put on the other side of the road and marched the army through it. Um, So that's kind of the guy that we're going to be dealing with here uh, that Esther's going to be married to. Um, Another thing that happened, um, he... While trying to get his army through the the Hellespont, uh, the the ocean there, when he had the the canal built, there was this large storm that occurred. And it caused a lot of damage and really messed up his plans. And he got really mad at that storm. So he had his soldiers whip the ocean 300 times and then shackle it. And and I think the soldiers were like, well, I don't know what to do here. So they just kind of threw some shackles into the ocean. Um, so that'll teach it, you know? Um, he burned Athens in his rage, right? How dare the Athenians revolt against me? I am trying to conquer their town and that's not fair. Okay. They should just take it and leave it and be fine with it. And so they're not. So I'm going to burn it down. He actually regretted that one later. Um, you know, I think it really motivated the Greek, maybe. Put a fire under, no, that's, that's probably poor choice. Um, but, you know, the Greeks later come back to, to get him for that one. Um, and then, you know, lastly, he, when he comes back after the defeat at Salamis, he, uh, he wants to start an affair with his brother's wife. And so to get closer to her, he marries his son to, their, to her daughter. But then he sees the daughter and he decides, no, actually, I don't want the wife. I want the daughter now and begins an affair with her instead. So this is the character, Ahasuerus, that Esther's going to be married to. And so when we think about, you know, Esther having to approach this man and the law being, you know, if he doesn't want you there, he'll just kill you. Um, yeah, there's, there's very real danger, right? We're dealing with a very capricious, uh, kind of, you know, unknown individual, right? He could go either way. Um, and so there's, there's definite risk there. 
Uh, one of the other main characters that we see in the very beginning is Vashti, right? So what do we know about Vashti? I mean, we basically know what is written in Esther. That's about it. Uh, we don't have any historical outside secular record of a Vashti. Um, the wife, the first wife of Ahasuerus was uh, Amitris. So it's possible that this may be describing uh, a mistress, excuse me, but really we, we don't exactly know. Um, if, you know, you were looking at the character of Vashti, well, we don't really know that so much either, right? Um, we get very little information in the very first chapter about her, and then she's gone. She's out of the picture. If it is a mistress, what we know about a mistress is that she was very intelligent. She had very poor morals. And sometimes she would have parties where she would have foreign women brought in and stripped nude to shame them just because uh, as part of the entertainment. Um, so she was a pretty cruel as well, uh, didn't have a whole lot of moral uh, character going on. But again, that's if Vashti is this amestrous person. We don't really know. So, based on all of that, as a background of this book, what do we learn from Esther? I think we learn a few things. First off, we learn of God's providence, right? The events that take place here, it is obvious when you read it that it is being directed by God, right? We also see God fulfilling his promise in Isaiah as well as other prophets where a remnant would be spared from the captivity. How do you ensure that a remnant is going to make it? Well, things like this, right? Things that occur like in the book of Esther where there's a situation and a crazy king is just going to sign over a law to let them wipe out an entire group of people. How do you prevent that from happening? Well, God does it this way, right? He works through the people in that location, in that area, and directs the events to fall as they do so that his will occurs, right? And his people are protected. And lastly, we see that, you know, we have a responsibility to do the right thing. And sometimes doing that is in a difficult situation and it has its own challenges. So what do we do? Well, what we learn in the book of Esther is we do the right thing anyway, right? And God will carry it through to enact his plan, right? And so I think those are the things that we see here in the book of Esther. All right, any comments before we jump into chapter one? Okay. Chapter one, verse one. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army of officers in Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. This is the first feast that we see in the book of Esther. First one, 
It's a doozy. Strap in, okay? 180-day-long feast. I mean, I go to potlucks, and I'm suffering at the end, right? 180 days, and what are we doing? Well, it's a big party, right? Again, remember, in the context, we're talking about returning from a victorious campaign against a rebellious Egypt, right? So there's a lot of celebration here. Ahasuerus is maybe showing off a little bit because, you know, that kind of fits with his character as well. Um, There's, you know, 180 days. You might say that's excessive, but that kind of fits his character as well, right? Um, So this, this shouldn't be shocking. It's just described as this is what happened, right? 180 days. Okay. What do you do when you have a 180-day feast? <clears throat> I mean, after that, you probably have a lot of cleanup, but you know what Ahasuerus does? We need another feast for seven more days just to take a break from the 180-day feast, right? We need a break. Let's have another one for seven more days. And so when those days were completed, the 180 days, he gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel from the greatest to the least, And it goes on to describe kind of the extravagance of this feast, right? There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement uh, of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Drinks are being served in golden vessels of various kinds. Royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. In verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Uh, Interesting note about this feast that Queen Vashti would have had. Uh, What significance is it that she has all the women at her feast? They're not at the king's feast. You're also dealing with... Persian leader, right? And as we learned when we were going through Daniel, a lot of these foreign kingdoms have a whole lot of potential upheaval, uh, maybe some coups that could happen, some assassinations that could happen. You could have, you know, one of your generals maybe try and, you know, poison somebody and kill them or maybe take, kill somebody there and take over or things like that. Um, It's a very smart political move to have your wife have a feast with all the women that you can then hold as hostage if needed, right? Um, So there may have been some intent there of, you know, this kind of protects me in case something happens, right? We have all their wives as hostages. Um, And so, you know, there might have been some some little political savvy going on there between uh, King Ahasuerus and his queen, But after this feast, on the last day of the feast, King Ahasuerus makes a request. He is in what state at this time? Verse 10. He's drunk, which you would expect after seven days of the king's wine being freely given, as it says, right? Um, So, yeah, he's drunk, and he has, he has this great idea. And the great idea is, we've, we've done, I've shown him all of my stuff. Now I want to show him how beautiful my queen is. So go get her, bring her in here, and, uh, and I'll show her beauty to all the people. And so they do. They, the eunuchs go. They go to get the queen. And what does the queen do? 
Yeah, Queen Vashti refuses. Um, so here's my question. Does this make Queen Vashti a hero? Why is she refusing to go? Really, the answer is we don't know. We have no idea, right? The passage doesn't say. Um, Is Vashti refusing because she does not want to be an object to these people, right? She doesn't want to be shamed in the same way that, you know, maybe if we're talking about a mistress, the way that she shamed some other people in that way, you know, we don't know. Uh, One plausible explanation is that she may be refusing to go, not for any moral uh, aspect of being like stripped nude in front of all these people, but maybe more of a uh, trying to prevent something worse. She may be trying to hide that she's pregnant. She may be trying to hide that she has leprosy, something that could potentially cause even a bigger problem with the king, right? So, you know, you'll see all kinds of stuff out there about, you know, Vashti is a feminist leader because she refuses to bow to the women, the male king. Um, I mean, we're just not told that here in in the text, right? Does it matter if she's a hero or not? I mean, I don't really think so, right? Can I learn a lesson if I believe that Vashti is a mistress and maybe this is some reaping what you sow? Could I learn that lesson here? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lesson we see other places in the scriptures. If I, you know, that would fit this example if that's the case, right? If she's not a mistress, if she's another queen and she hasn't done anything wrong and she refuses to go out of morality and decency to not show herself as, you know, as nude in front of the people. Could I learn that lesson? I mean, I think so, right? I think we can. Uh, I mean, we, we see this in scriptures all the time, right? There's lessons that we learn from the negative examples. There's lessons we learn from the positive examples. Sometimes those examples are a little bit ambiguous, and there may be good points made either way. Why not take all of the good points and apply them, Right? as long as they fit in the truth. I don't think making the application of her being a mistress or not invalidates the story in any way, right? Um, But I think there's some lessons that we can learn, and so let's just learn them, right? That's the way we should do it. Um, And so... What does this do? Again, we remember we're dealing with a king who has a lot of a lot of variance in his uh, his attitude, his reaction to things. You really have no idea what's going to happen. I didn't cover this on the slide, um, but. Uh, Amestris, one, one thing about her that we know she has low morals is she did discover the uh, affair between King Ahasuerus and uh, his daughter-in-law. 
Um, and when she discovered that, she wanted to have revenge. And so she plotted this revenge. She decided that she didn't want to take it out on uh, the daughter-in-law, on uh, Artani. But instead, she wanted to take it out on her mother because it was her fault that she raised a daughter that was so horrible that she would do this kind of thing. So they had another feast or time where King Xerxes offered his wife a choice. What would you, what would you like to have? You know, we see that a lot in Esther, right? He makes these grandiose uh, gestures. Um, and she says, I want your brother's wife. And he says... Please, no, that's a bad idea. Let's not do that. Um, and she says, no, that's what I want. And so he gives her to his wife. And what she does is she has her breast cut off, her eyes, or her nose, her ears, her lips, and her tongue. And then she sends her back home. The Persians were not known for their mercy, Right? Um, and so, yeah, maybe if Vashti is this amestrous person, she was getting a little bit of what she sowed. Um, again, none of these people in Esther are described as being good moral examples that we need to follow, right? That, that's not listed here, um, and so there's a little bit of ambiguity in, in the morals of some of these individuals while we read this story and see God working even through that to accomplish his ultimate plan, right? Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice. And there were those uh, were, and were close to him. Uh, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Mimican, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. The question is, what are we going to do? Um, Queen Vashti has refused to come. So I got to bring in my seven guys and we got to talk about it, right? Um, I like that phrase, uh, the wise men who understood the times. Um, I think basically what that's saying is they're supposed to understand the law, right? The law of the Medes and the Persians. They had a very vast uh, law that, again, like we see in Daniel, when you make a law, you can't change that law. So you can't, make a decree, and then try and take it back. So that could cause some political complication. The intent is that you are supposed to be very conscientious when you make laws because of their permanence. We see how that holds in Daniel. We'll see how that holds here. But that's the intent behind that kind of idea of governance, right? Um, and so that requires some additional input to figure out what can we do in this situation, and so what do the seven men suggest? Yeah, yeah. I, I like that their, their first idea is this isn't just a problem for you. This is a problem for us now, right? Like 
you know, this isn't just going to stay here. She's the queen. She's got some kind of influence. And so what's going to happen to my wife now? You know, what's going to happen to the, men, the men's wives in our nation? We have, we have to take charge, right? Um, <laughs> queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. She didn't just say no to you. She said no to all of us. Um, And that's such a silly thing, right? I mean, it makes sense when you're thinking about the people that we're dealing with, right? It made sense in the time with Daniel where you have these magicians and things who are basically just jealous of Daniel and his success. And so, you know, everyone should worship you, king. That would just, that's exactly what we need as a way to get rid of this other guy that we hate. But everybody's so childish in this, in these different situations, right? It makes me remember what Brother Mel Prater used to always say, which is most people don't mature past fifth grade. That's about it. And we kind of see that here, right? Um. The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of uh, Persia and Media who have heard all of the king's queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. And so what's their suggestion? Get rid of her. Remove her as queen. And find a new queen, right? If we don't like that one, kick her out, bring in a new one, right? Um, I think we don't need to forget that Ahasuerus is a prince of Persia who, like many, uh, a king of Persia, who, like many kings in the day, had not just the one wife, right? Again, in the Bible, when we see all the kings, King Saul is the only one I'm aware of who had the one wife, right? All the other ones had multiple wives. And I mean, you think about Solomon, how many concubines did he have? Hundreds, right? And, and we're talking about the same thing here. I mean, he had a whole entire wing of his palace built for the women in his harem. So, you know, getting rid of the queen is more of a political statement than anything else, right? Um, but he makes, that, he makes that plan. It sounds good to him, right? So, okay, here we go. We're going to sign the law. Uh, when the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom... Uh, or excuse me, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the law of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. You want to make everybody happy? Get rid of Ashti as queen. And if you do that, then all the women who heard that she said no to you 
will really be happy with their husbands. I mean, that's basically what they say, right? Um, again, it's absurd. It's shocking when you read this that people think that their forms of governance are the, have to be the best, <laughs> right? These kind of glimpses that we get into foreign kingdoms and their processes, like in Esther and in Daniel, I think really show the benefit of God's law and following God's law in the Old Testament, right? God's law was... I mean, it covered everything that they needed, right? Everything that they needed. And yet, they found it very difficult to follow. I mean, why in the book of Judges did they want a king? I mean, they wanted a king so that they could be like everybody else. But everybody else is making laws like this. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of the nature of us as human beings, right? We, we do that. We think somebody has something else that's better. And even when we're told that it's not better, I think it's better. So it must be better, right? It just makes sense. It's my reality. So it's got to be real. But, but that's not how it works, right? Um. So the king Ahasuerus sends letters to all the provinces. The word pleases him and the princes, and so he does as they suggest. Uh, to each province according to its script, to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. This is interesting because at the time, Persia was one of the few nations that seemed to have a little bit more leniency towards women, a little bit more rights given to women. One of uh, Ahasuerus' Xerxes' advisors was a woman, like military advisor. Uh, She was the one who told him, don't go into that battle at Salamis, go home and just put pressure on him economically and it'll be fine. He didn't listen to her and he got defeated. Then she said, go back home. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea, right? Um, So now he is back home, and he's going to make a great wise decision by tamping all that down, right? Men will be the rulers of their house in in, in this kingdom now. And to let everyone know, we'll send it out to everybody in their language so they'll all know. And this is where we end chapter 1. We end in the situation of the queen's been, you know, removed. Now we have a vacancy. And so we're going to continue on in the story to find out who ends up being chosen to fill that vacancy. And what's going to happen with that. You know, we don't have a lot being said here of... You know, why Vashti 
refused going to that, uh, going to the, the presence of the king. But what ends up happening from that is the salvation of a nation, right? So regardless of the reasoning, her personal reasoning, what I can see is that being used by God to create an opportunity for someone else to help carry out his will. And that's impressive. Our God is very powerful. Small things used in a big way to have a significant and major impact, right? And that doesn't just stop with the book of Esther. It doesn't just stop with the nation of Israel. It continues, even through today, right? Small things make a big deal. Texting someone, how are you doing today, when you know that they're going through a difficult time, is important and has a big impact, probably more than you think. It's a very small thing. Uh, Texting someone, I'm praying for you. Calling somebody, checking up on them, takes maybe 10, 15 minutes, maybe longer. You don't have to say much because it doesn't take much, right? Um, But that's the thing. Our God can use these small things to have the biggest impact, and that's impressive. We should find that encouraging. We should find that motivating because... If small things have a big impact, then how many small things are you and I doing on a regular basis? If we want to have the most impact, maybe we need to bump up that number, right? So we can be the biggest benefit and help to our brethren and to our congregation here and to those in this world. We are an example, whether good or bad. To all those around us who see. And why, while I will not be listed in any historical record as having a certain character or conquering certain nations or whatever, you never know who's watching and you never know who is paying attention. And that's important, right? We are in control of our example and we need to make sure that it's a good one. Any comments? Yes. Thank you. Forgive me if my voice fails me, but to tie into what you were just saying about not having, um, maybe not winding up on a public record of something that you've done or, or, or being of service to others, it may not be a, a record that we can recognize, but I can speak from personal experience, as I often do uh, in the way this congregation has treated my family, or how God has treated my family through members of this congregation. And, <clears throat> excuse me, there are days, <clears throat> days when I'm at home, and I can look back in, in, in my life, and I can see the direction of the family tree changing because of how some, 
because of how someone mentored my, my wife or someone how, how someone mentored me or, or how someone um, took my wife into their house and, and made her brunch and, and listened to her and, and helped save a marriage. And so I drove by this church for 20 years when I, was, I would work here in town drove by this building. It was before all this was here. It was just the, the little part. And I, I just noticed it was another church of Christ. But I would have never known then that 15 years later, while my marriage was in shambles, that my wife would bump into a group of people here at Panera Bread having Bible study. I, I didn't know that a couple years after that, while I was sick and none of these people knew me, that money was sent to make sure my rent was paid or that food was on our table. I had no idea that one day I would sit here with, with the elders of this congregation and ask to join to place membership here. And I hear stories like this from multiple people here when, when they share them with me. And so hearing this, hearing, hearing what you're saying, I, I was talking to Jonathan last night about this. I, it reminds me of Lou Gehrig, the famous baseball player who benched himself because he had that disease that was then called Lou Gehrig's disease. And he said, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And when I see the, the character of the people here, when I see God working through the people here, there have been days where if I, could, if I could look Lou Gehrig in the face, I would say, I think I got you beat, buddy. Yeah. Only it's not lucky, it's fortunate. So I, I know that, yeah, sometimes it's, it's not a public record, but it is a public record because you can see it in the posterity of those who have been helped. Yeah. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. Yeah, those small things that have a long impact. Those people may not even remember that anymore, but you do. And you probably will for many years to come. Yeah, it's impressive. All right, uh, next week we'll be in Esther chapter 2.